Hello, 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 and welcome to a very special episode of Potstill Live. As always, I am your host, Matt Healy, and today we are having a fantastic Rowan Co. takeover of Potstill Live, and we are celebrating the illustrious career of Miss Caroline Martin, who is uh, the Diageo Whiskey Team's Master Blender, and also in today's episode, most importantly, Rowan Co. Master Blender. Um, she is set to retire uh, this April, which is just, I suppose, the next month. It's a couple of days away. Um, but we are following on from her momentous 35 years in the drinks industry. Uh, and we are going to speak to not only Caroline, but also Laura Hemi, Master, or sorry, excuse me, Laura, head distiller of Rowan Co. Whiskey, and also Peter Simpson, who is the head brewer at the Guinness Open Gate Brewery. And um, we are going to talk all about the creation of Rowan Co., as well as Caroline's fantastic career and the collaborations that are going on on James's Street between Rowan Co. Distillery and the Guinness Open Gate Brewery. Um, and I, I suppose. I want to welcome everyone to the show. Um, I am this is the first time we've done a, a, a four-way chat that is going to be so filled with information, um, and it is also the first time to welcome. Um, I, I I don't think I've had a caliber of guests like this before. We have a a master blender, a head distiller, and a head brewer. We've got all angles of alcohol uh, fermentation. Um, uh, and distillation and blending in one chat. So I suppose first of all, Caroline. Uh, very welcome to you, and thank you so much for giving us your time. And to Laura and to Peter, thank you guys as well. I suppose I'll start with you, Caroline. Where are you joining us from this evening? Um, I'm joining you from Bonnie Dundee. Um, I just moved here tail end of last year, so it's all new. Um, we're obviously still in lockdown, but um, hoping in retirement to be able to explore the area. Yeah. <laughs> nice to well, that's here. very good. And and is that a, a new move uh, ahead of the retirement, or is that is that closer to to where where you want to be? Um, a bit of both, Matt. Um, it's the big new project for retirement. So yeah, new house, new garden that's still to be sorted, um, and just yeah, explore the area around about. We're looking forward to it. My husband's retiring the same day, and he works with Diageo too. <laughs> that's that is that is quite a serendipitous story i'm sure it's perfectly yeah. planned and serendipitous so i like it <laughs> uh, and and laura where are you joining us from this evening i am literally in my upstairs sort of heidi hole at home which is about five minutes around the corner from the distillery in dublin eight and i'm actually going back there later so at home so, so I have nabbed you in between being in the distillery. I very much appreciate you taking the time to jump in with us. And uh, Peter, uh, Mr. Simpson, where are you joining us from? I'm uh, I'm at home as well. I'm in uh, in in Kildare, in Carberry, in County Kildare. Oh, fantastic. Well, to all of you, thank you so much for your time. I know I am taking up a combined. Uh, the combined caliber of, of Diageo staff at the moment. And I really appreciate uh, both you guys and Roanco for organizing this. Um, I suppose I want to start with you, uh, Caroline. Um, you know, what, how did, you know, you get into the whiskey industry and, and how have you, you know, so pursued your career to where you are today as a, a master blender? Um, it's been a really interesting journey. Um, gone through different phases. So if, if you wind the clock back um, almost 35 years ago, I came to Diageo um, having qualified from Queen Margaret College in Edinburgh with a BA degree in home economics. Um, and as the final year, I focused on food science and part of the um, 
the agenda, if you like, was to do recipe adaptations. So even from an early start, before the career started, um, I was blending different foods together. And uh, that blending theme has followed me all the way through my career, which has been good fun. Um, but I started in the new product department in Diageo, um, not necessarily whiskies, um, although some of the products were based on whiskey. Um, and it was just really feeling our way. This was the first time ever that Diageo um, of its time was uh, creating new drinks and being really innovative. So we were at the forefront of all that happening in Menstrie, close to Stirling. Um, and from there, it's, it's true to say that I really got uh, passionate about all things sensory. Um, how we described our products, how they tasted, um, and how we as experts in the field um, actually connected with the consumers, because that's critically important. I mean, we can do all the blending we like, but if these products don't engage the consumers, then what's the point really? Um, so I did uh, go off to our sensory department at Menstrie on secondment, which was meant to be six months. And I got so interested in it, I never came back. Um, long six months. It was a long six months, but I really enjoyed it. Um, and just, you know, training people at the sites and, and getting them on board with language and descriptors and being able to pick different samples out from each other uh, as part of the quality assurance. I mean, that was critically important and still remains so. So um, that that was a part of the role that I really enjoyed was to, to get people engaged, get panels trained um, and be competent. Um, and then just before the millennium, that's when I actually came over onto the whiskey side of the business and tried to apply that learning um, from sensory onto whiskies, which is quite different from flavoured products. Uh, and just, you know, getting your palate used to what flavours are in different malt and grain whiskies for scotch takes a lot of time. Um, and you've got to stay at the bench and get that practical experience to, to gain your experience to, to, to be able to apply it. Um, so that, that's been it in a nutshell. That's a whistle stop tour. Um, so say it's a, quite a synopsis of, of 35 years in the industry. That was, that was good. It was about three minutes. I, I, <laughs> it was just <laughs> concise. Yeah. Um, one a lot of more detail underneath that, of course. Exactly. Uh, one of the things you mentioned there in particular that piqued my interest was that um, when you're saying uh, how to kind of convey to consumers, so you're not only training the teams internally uh, and mm -hmm. and working on sensory analysis, but you're you're also trying to, I suppose, speak to the people internally on how they speak to the people externally. Because if yeah. you guys can be the most trained sensory people in the world, but I imagine the conveying all of that uh, to the consumer is very important. Yes, and and that's correct, Matt. But um, we also have to listen to what the consumers tell us. And that was something that was really new and innovative of its time was when we came to blend um, Roan Co. We were working in collaboration with the brand ambassador of the time. Um, and that was critically important. That footprint was um, instrumental in making sure that what went out as Roan Co. when it was eventually launched, we knew ahead of the time that consumers would love that whiskey because we had worked in collaboration with the ambassador. So me creating the prototypes, small scale, 100 mils of two or three different products, 
um, I would give these prototypes to the ambassador and he would engage with the consumers. He was a bartender, had all that experience that I didn't have, but that mechanism of feeding back from the consumers directly to me meant that I could use that constructive feedback to fine tune the product. Um, so that was really important to be able to work in that way. And and first of all, that's fantastic insight to hear because you hear people say all the time, "Oh, we went to market and whatnot," and you literally the 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 legwork was done, the 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 blends hit the street, as it were. Um, yeah. But I for people watching at home that that don't know, I suppose you know, you're saying that you were able to tweak them on the the far end after you know blending and creating them. I suppose for people that don't, at home that don't know the role of a, I suppose a day to day role of a master blender, what what actually does does the job entail, and and particularly perhaps in the guise of, you know, making our own pro blend and then you know tweaking it on the far end. Yeah, and uh, I've heard so many blenders say it before, but there's never two days alike, and and that really is true. Um, but if you follow it from a supply chain perspective, um, in order to blend mature whiskies, you've got to start with new make spirit. And that is really important to get your head and your, more importantly, your nose and taste buds round about as well. It needs to be in spec, that new make spirit. Otherwise, nothing will correct it thereafter in the supply chain. So a good grounding in new make spirit quality and what language you would use to describe it is the starting point. Um, after that, it obviously gets filled into casks. And again, we can select different cask types to give the mature flavour that we want to work with. So we need to manage the, the casks as well, that they perform and they do what we expect of them. And then we as blenders get the really privileged opportunity to sample from that maturing stock, even before it's whiskey. So we can sample from a few months in the maturation process um, and nose and taste at that point, and then continue that sampling way beyond that. And that is a real um, privilege to be able to do that because me as a blender, I get to pick the right flavors. And I think that's that. That's what I want to be doing is it's not necessarily about an age statement. It really is about the flavor style and what is going to connect with the consumers. And so the, all the way through that, that is um, can be innovating new products. But a lot of the time as well, it's about ensuring the quality of our blends, uh, Scotch and Irish uh, for Ronco. And we are custodians, we are protectors of the blend quality. So that is really important uh, for part of our role as well. So the innovation stuff is really exciting and new and takes us to a place where nobody else has been before if we do our job right. But we are the people who look after what, what is currently going in a bottle and what consumers currently appreciate. So all of that is part of the role. Fantastic. And I, and I think people often forget the the sheer skill and analysis that does go into uh, blending. You know, people think of the, you know, the fanaticism around, you know, maybe single malt scotches or even cast strength single malts, but the being able to create a product that tastes the same, whether or not you consume it in Shanghai or in, or in, you know, yeah. San Francisco is, is truly a skill. And, and I, I really enjoyed listening to you there explain about the, you know, you're, you're finding the flavors that work. And, and I'd love to bring Laura in here because, um, you know, often I think people assume that when 
you know, new distilleries start up, the distiller kind of creates a flavor profile that they that they're you know happy with, or the distills make, or the grains available make. But in in this scenario, you're working with initially you know aged stocks, and then rolling into a new distillery, and obviously that's uh, always going to be a, a very interesting transition and and challenge. And and how did I suppose between the two of you, what was the plan when the distillery started to create a can you know a a flavor profile that that worked for Rowan Co as a blend? Caroline, you had the, the, the genius brief of actually like taking it down to its you know, component parts essentially and, and you know, breaking down into you know, profiles that we might achieve separately. Um, and that's one of the really unique things about what we're doing at the distillery is that you know, following Caroline's lead and the brief that she set for, uh, for our spirit character, we're actually working with two really distinct profiles in production and actually blending them together at the distillery so we're, we're working with blending before uh, we've even hit uh, wood which i think is absolutely fantastic and, and as a distiller like why would you not want to be working with you know, one of the world's greatest blenders on such a cool project with such a great brief that that is instantly i want to do that it's good fun <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, I think I think to be fair, I mean Laura is really experienced in all things sensory as well. So um a massive credit to how Laura interpreted my brief, if you like, and my um descriptor for the new make spirit. Um but it is a novel approach as well. And uh yeah, using that experience between both of us, um, we could understand what we were saying to each other and we interpreted it, thankfully, we interpreted it well and we're laying down new make stock, which will be used in the future. So that's that's something to look forward to. Um, I'm not going to be here, but I'll be looking for it on the, the supermarket shelves when it's there. Yeah. Absolutely. It's really cool to come at it from sort of two opposing like time perspectives, I guess. And I think that's where you know, distillers and blenders have this really fantastic symbiotic relationship. And um, I think that's definitely true in, in, in how we've done this at the distillery. Um, so super excited to, to see the progress. And Caroline will be first on the list when we have mature <laughs> spirit. And, and it's funny to me as an outsider looking in, it, it almost seems like you're both blending just on two different ends of the scale. You know, Laura, yeah. you're, you're, you're blending those flavors at the creation and, and Caroline at the, at the maturation, I suppose. Um, but exactly right, Matt. It's, it's good that you've understood that. I've never really looked at it in that way before, but it makes sense. So well done. Yeah. Um, so I suppose there was a lot, uh, you know, there's a lot gone into the brand in the, in the genesis of it there now Laura's is, is is taking the helm on, on the flavor creation and, and matching the the character that you've said about um how i suppose how did the you know we've already spoken about how the blend hit the streets um but there was i believe it was the 106th blend that you put together was yeah. what, what Roanco is say behind me here um yep. the Roanco original bottle um i suppose how did that the final product come to be uh, that was quite some time in, in landing it, actually, Matt. Um, we started, or I started the journey when uh, Helen Mulholland from Bushmills uh, was working alongside me. And I remember um, we sat down at a meeting and we had this brief to come up with a, an Irish blended whiskey. 
And I was really keen and eager to get involved in Irish whiskey because um, as people recognise, I, I don't have an Irish accent and all of my life uh, working with Diageo had been working on Scotch whiskies. And again, it was just fulfilling that dream of looking at different whiskies. How do you describe them? What differentiates them? And so to begin this project, um, it was very much a joined master blender approach, which was really exciting for me. The project was put on hold uh, when Diageo decided uh, Bushmills was no longer going to be in their portfolio. And so that project was done at that time. And then it was resurrected a few years down the line. And I was really um, chuffed, chuffed to bits to be asked to start this new project, if you like. And the brief was much the same. But it was like I, d I didn't have anybody to support me on it and to learn all the different flavours that applied to the whiskies in our inventory, our Irish whisky inventory. It was very much a steep learning curve for me. The, the blending part is, is very similar. Uh, so first off, I had to look at what was out there in the way of Irish whisky. So what, were the, what was the competitor set? And you know, how would I describe them? Other people might well describe them differently, but it was me that was going to have to craft this new blended Irish whiskey. So I had to get my head round about where were the other products sitting and where, if anywhere, was there a niche that I could blend this new product to fit into? Um, so that took me a few weeks, actually, going back to the same samples to see if they had changed and would I describe them differently. And over time, it was becoming clear to me that there was a gap and it was how I was going to populate that gap with the new whiskey. Um, the, the next again stage was looking at the inventory. So what did I have available to me to be able to hand pick and choose the different flavours that I wanted to be in this new blend? And again, it was getting my head round about that. So different whiskey types. We had malt whiskey, green whiskey and pot still whiskey, which is different from scotch. We had them maturing at different lengths of time in the cask and we had different influence from the cask types as well. So all that matrix was getting bigger and bigger as I looked at it. Uh, but it, it was time well invested and um, these prototypes were coming thick and fast at the start and I reached a plateau where um, I gave these prototypes to the ambassador and that was the next big stage. So all the time, these prototypes had been blended at 40% alcohol because that, again, is the legal requirement, same as scotch. But one really big bit of constructive feedback was in a cocktail serve in particular, 40% just was not cutting through all the other ingredients. So it made me stop and think and back to the drawing board. And what we have ended up with, obviously in our Ronco cornerstone blend, is 45% alcohol. And I had to take it to that strength to work well as a, a straight mix, which was on the brief, but also with a, a straight, straight mixer. So neat and a straight mixer and also in a cocktail serve. And so that adaptation over time took time and it took the prototype 106 for me to be proud to put my name on the bottle and to to say look we have tested it 
I'm really confident that what we have in the bottle is going to be successful and people will enjoy it. So that's why it took 106 prototypes. It's always it's always funny for me thinking in my head, seeing you know numbers and, and often uh, particularly new brands as well will have on the label maybe you know recipe number or whatever, and it's always a low number. And always, it always, there's always a there's always a seesaw moment in my head, wondering, is it better to have tried 106 and found the right one, or to finish to stop looking on your first blend? And push the boundaries, man. Yeah, of course, and and I give you I give you major kudos on on the longevity of your search as well. That that must have been uh, quite and even you know when you were doing the different blends with the brand ambassador, you know, I'm sure you were finding, like you said, the, the ABV wasn't high enough and I'm sure there's tweaks to the cast yeah. maturations or the, 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 the volume of different component parts. And I think that's uh, a, a part of the whiskey industry that people often forget that it's not just taking cask A and cask B, put them together and out the yeah. door you go. Um, so when, you know, I suppose today, Perhaps last month, as as we're we're you know we're, we're coming to celebrate your retirement from the industry, but say last month, uh, and and every time you know before that, uh, are are you still in charge? I suppose of the archetype blend of Ronco that must be adhered to, or has that uh, I suppose the the ownership devolved into the distillery itself? I think. I think to be fair, it is still about collaboration and that's the way that I would like to see it continuing because it is a partnership and I think that is important to maintain the consistency going forward as well. So we are laying down stocks or, or Laura is laying down stocks for the future. Um, I think for me, as, as I reach retirement, it's been really important to do a, a handover to someone else in the whiskey team. Um, so... Yeah, I'm really confident that the future of Ronco is bright and the innovation pipeline is full of really good ideas and I wish I could stay around to see them see them come to the fore. Uh, but I've got to hand that over to somebody else and we need to ensure as a whiskey team, as a blending team, that again, um, as well as all the other scotches that we do, that Ronco is kept consistent, the core blend, and if innovations are big in volume, again, that consistency is really important because once you have adopters as consumers liking your whiskey, the last thing you want to do is put them off by inconsistency. So that's, that's important going forward as well. Absolutely. Um, I, I want to bring in Peter here uh, at this point. Um, Obviously, you know, Caroline's been talking about collaboration a lot in, in everything we're doing. Uh, the Guinness Open Gate Brewery, obviously facing the front door of the Rowan Co. Distillery. Um, I suppose, Peter, from your end, uh, what, what is it like having the distillery across the road? And I suppose, you know, your, your end of the business is, is very much a fermentation-based uh, uh, expertise and and I know Laura is, is experimenting with a lot of fermentation as well as uh, distillation styles. What, what's it like for you having the distillery across the road? And is there is there a lot of, I suppose, uh, a lot of, I suppose, sharing of ideas between the two sites? Yeah, I mean, it's great having the distillery across the road. Uh, I mean, myself and Laura bump into each other numerous times a week on, on site. Um, and it's, I think what the real, 
um, spark of the collaboration was I was starting to experiment with barrels and barrel aging with beers in, in the Guinness Open Gate. And then when Lower came and the, the distillery opened, we started chatting saying, what can we do with these barrels once I've finished with them? Um, because for, for beer, unlike whiskey, it's quite tricky to reuse a barrel after you've had a beer in there, unless you're putting it in straight away because of microbial contamination and things like that, if you want wood character. If you don't want any wood character from the barrel, you can keep using it by sterilizing the barrel and you get less and less wood character every time you use it. Um, but normally when you age a beer in a barrel, you want that wood character. So we, we were building up a number of barrels that we'd used that had nowhere to go. Um, so having a chat with Laura and Caroline was like, let's do this some, something together and find a home for these and let's have some fun and create something interesting. So, and that kind of spiraled itself into uh, the Cask and Keg series, I believe, uh, between which collaboration between Caroline and yourself uh, and Rowan Co. and the Guinness Open Gate Brewery. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and they created some absolutely amazing products, uh, some amazing beers, which um, were, were great on the shelves. And the, the whiskies are absolutely stupendous. <laughs> Before before we we deep dive into that, um, what you know for people watching at home that don't you know have haven't have been playing around with barrel maturation of the of their their IPAs or their or their uh, or their saisons, um, what why why for you as a brewer are you know why wouldn't you reuse those barrels? I know you said there's small things, but like people at home perhaps don't know about you know Britannomyces or souring of beers. What kind of off notes or effects would you get? or perhaps lose in the sense of sterilizing the barrels. Yeah, so if you say you got yourself a, a nice bourbon bourbon barrel, um, when you put your first beer in there, you'll get a, quite a steep ABV increase because the barrel is quite wet and there's quite a lot of spirit still in the barrel. And the osmotic pressures between whiskey and, and beer are different. So that spirit will come back out of the barrel and into the beer. So you get quite a steep um, ABV increase but without any further fermentation. Um, and that, in once it gives you a huge amount of flavor impact. But also you'll get an awful lot of that oak character. So the American oak, you get lots of vanilla, um, things like that. Um, and that's the first time you use it. If you're careful and you're good, you don't get any Brettamyces, you don't get any lactic bacteria, you don't get any acetic, and you come out with a brilliant, brilliant tasting beer. Once you empty that barrel, that barrel is then full of oxygen and aerobic bacteria can start flourishing very, very quickly. Um, so at which point either you fill the barrel as immediately after you've emptied it, or you need to sterilize that barrel. By sterilizing, you're typically using steam, um, which heats the wood and will, will kill any, any microbe. It'll then also start leaching out some of the, the wood flavor. As well, so every time you sterilize and reuse the barrel, you're getting less wood character um, to the point where you, where you don't get any. Um, if you think of um, some of the, the Belgian lambics, they're all um, aged in, in, in oak barrels, but you get very little oak character coming through from those because they are repeatedly used and repeatedly sterilized every time they're refilled. Um, so it's, it's quite a, a fine balance of how many times you use it and the flavor you get. Um, and unfortunately for beer, you, you're not able to keep beer long enough to be able to blend 
some barrels that are freshly filled and some that are second or third fill because the, bar- the beer just doesn't last that long. Um, mm. Beer is a much shorter shelf life than, than, than whiskey. Exactly. And, and, and particularly that shelf life uh, aspect also lends itself again back into when the beer is actually in the wood and and the oxygen and the aerobic bacteria is getting in there it's the exact same idea that that that's going to be start turning it sour um yeah. so i suppose you know the rowan co blend is 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 made at this point the distillery is 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 happily experimenting and churning away and getting great consistent product following caroline's um uh flavor profile that that laura has has taken upon in the distillery and um, where in the world i suppose did the you know you have the barrels going on in the in the brewery, but I suppose where did the you know talk me through the first conversations you had, and then bring me through to how we now have two barrel aged uh, Rowan Co uh, whiskies. Yeah, so I I've been experimenting a little bit more with bourbon barrels uh, and a few Scotch barrels, um, a couple of Talisker ones, which created some very interesting <laughs> beers. <laughs> they were love it or hate it beers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, and I think then it was um, but down to, to Caroline um, and, and, and the brand team finding that we have this brewery on, on the doorstep of the, of the distillery. Um, let's see what we can do together. Um, let's find what beers work well in a barrel. Let's find what, we're, what flavors work well then coming through into the spirit. Um, so between Caroline and myself, we, we, we went through quite a number of, um, of Guinness beers and, and Guinness Open Gate beers and settled on the Citra IPA, um, which is not a beer that you would typically age in a barrel. A hoppy, hoppy IPA um, is not something that you'd normally put into a barrel. And then something a bit more, a bit more mainstream, a bit more typical is the Antwerpen Stout, um, which is a beautiful, um, beautiful stout, um, which is robust and, and 8% to begin with. Um, and then when you age it in the barrel, it just grows to uh, something absolutely wonderful uh, absolutely and um, what what was the process like in and, and for anyone that doesn't i suppose know the guinness open gate brewery if you go in obviously it, it's a you know I, i'd say akin to an american style uh beer tap room of a brewery and um, a fantastic open setting you can see the fermentation vessels you can see some of the barrels you're using and then you know the kind of revolving uh wall menu of everything that's that's coming through the brewery, and obviously there's there's some fantastic things that have gone through there. I've I've personally enjoyed some you know some Goza style beers, some chili stouts. You know, there's some fantastic lagers that come through there. How did you sit down and I suppose between you choose a Citra IPA? Uh, you know, and, and, and like you mentioned, the Antwerpen Stout. Uh, stout beers have a, a history of of cast maturation. You know, you know, as as many Irish people will know, Guinness was at one point the largest cooperage in the world. Uh, so there was there's a long history of stout in barrels. But Citra IPA in particular, you know, how did you sit down together and go? That is exactly the character profile that we're not only going to throw into wood, but to draw out again with the whiskey. Yeah, I mean, I think from from my side, it was a little bit more of the experimentation, um, and what is at the heart of Dina's Open Great is experimenting, doing something that is not normally done, and seeing what happens. Um, and then I think I think I'm not going to talk for you, Caroline, but it was the flavor profile of of, of the the, uh, the the Citra that you uh, 
Yeah. Your, your sensory. I think, yeah, the, t the two um, options in terms of stout IPA were chosen because they were quite different from each other. And I think that was critically important. But to build on where we are with the flavour profile for Ronco, we have a soft fruitiness in Ronco, which I describe as being like poached pears. There's a soft spicy note but it's it's juicy it's orchard fruits so there's a soft fruitiness there and i selected well between us we selected the citra option because it in itself is really fruity and zesty and vibrant um so i wanted to accentuate and pull out the fruitiness in ronco by um, filling into the cast that previously held citra um the other one the stout was much more robust and uh, roasted coffee, chocolate, all these dark flavours. Uh, and that really intrigued me. So it was probably to satisfy my, my own curiosity. But um, I think both work equally well. Um, if I was to select a favourite, um, and I'm taking you on that journey with me, it, to me, the Citra is just exceptional. Um, we did do lots of samplings, and Laura was involved in that as well with some other people. Um, but that the flavour change over time just for me jumped out as being sensational and we caught it at the right time. I think if we had left it in the, the barrels any longer than we did, um, then it, it would have changed and it wouldn't have been as, as good as it, it is. Um, so yeah, two different flavour styles, two innovative products and again, working with collaboration. That's the theme of Ronco is about the and co being about collaboration, which is important. Absolutely. From, I suppose, I'm going to ask you, Caroline, first, and Peter, the exact same question to you. Uh, was there was there a, a, a fear or a worry in your head about hops in, in the barrel and in subsequently in the whiskey for you, Caroline? I think my nervousness was about my lack of experience with the whole brewing side of the industry. And and I was concerned um, more about the microbial spoilage and what that could do to the whiskey. So I was really protective of where we're going to take it. But I think, again, it's about pushing the boundaries and being like George Rowe, being a pioneer. You need to try new things and sometimes they'll fail, but you'll learn from it. Uh, fortunately, this time with both of these, they've worked really well. So, yeah, more innovative products in the market. Absolutely. And Peter, for hops, hops in, in cask for you, was that just a, a, an easy experimentation solution? It was. It was just experimenting. I mean, you normally wouldn't put hops anywhere near an ox, a, a barrel where you've got a bit of oxygen and you, and because you would typically end up with uh, sweaty socks or blue cheese character <laughs> coming through in your beer, which you really don't want. Yeah. Um, but I think for, for me, for, for the, the Citra IPA, um, again, we caught it right, right at the end of the barrel as well because we did start getting some souring. There were some hints of lactic and some um, Brettanomyces character coming through on that. And I think had we left it another month, those would have been much too overpowering and probably the barrels would have been unusable for, for Caroline and Laura at that point as well. Um, but I think what was also key along with that is that we actually refilled those barrels with, with rope within 24 hours of emptying them of the beer. Um, just to give us that little bit of extra security in around that microbial risk. 
Uh, you know, Peter, Peter and Caroline, you don't know about this about me, but uh, having worked in uh, businesses that were both breweries and distilleries, I've done a lot of this kind of cask collaboration before, and I've had I've made the mistake of leaving uh, freshly disgorged casks um, mm. alone for, and they were only left alone for three days. I think their the warehouse team didn't swap them over fast enough, and um, the the world of of craziness happened to those casks uh, <laughs> in that time. And it is, um, you know, from a beer point of view, we were we were terrified of dissolved uh, dissolved oxygen. We were worried about what's going to happen to the beer. And it essentially, you know, it was it was they got dropped into the filling station, didn't get filled quickly enough. Half of them soured, and then half of them ended up with this like weird white like you know mold bacteria in them. Obviously, every single cask was in, unusable. Um, and at that point, uh, particularly depending on what what casts you're using you know that's that's an expensive mistake yeah. to make as well not just you know not only you know depending i don't I, and one of my next questions is you know how long the beers were matured before the cast went or the cast went over to row um but when you have a, a project that you've now spent three four six months aging a beer in uh and you meant to bring it over to the whiskey side and and you and you don't and you fail that execution that's a not only a you know, the, the cask value now gone. Yeah. You've also just spent six months prepping a project mm. and now it takes another six months to come along. So, um, I, 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 you know, people might hear this and, and think, oh, fair enough, whatever. That's, a, you know, filling in 24 hours, very serious point <laughs> when, <laughs> when, when trying to move from beer into, into anything else. Um, but, Peter, just before we do progress, how long were the were the beers in, in cask uh, before they went back to row? There- they were in there about seven months. Uh, now personally, I probably would have left the Antwerp in a little bit longer and the, the Citra slightly shorter. Um, but the, the logistics of it, we, we did them both at, at seven months, uh, which is about typical for, for your barrel age beer. Yeah. And, and then, uh, Carolyn, from, from the distillery point of view, how long were the, were the row uh, whiskeys left in those uh, casks but before they get bottles yeah it, it was about a similar timeline and um, we were sampling regularly which i think is critically important to do as well because that flavor shift was quite exceptional um particularly towards the end and you you, you need to keep an eye on where where is that flavor going so yeah it's it's important to get that flavor impact but not to overshoot it so it was it was a matter of months as well yeah Absolutely. Um, well, I suppose it's perhaps a, a good time that uh, we have, I suppose, the two the two bottles behind me here with the lovely white labels, end yeah. capping, uh, Rowan Co. and, and the cast strength. Um, perhaps it would be a good time to stick our nose in some glasses and, and talk about the characteristics. Yeah. Um, is there one you'd particularly like to start with? or? Um, I usually start with the lighter in character, so I would say that's the Citra. Okay, yeah. So... Um, Again, just referring to the alcoholic strength, this this one is at 56.6% alcohol. So just be careful on your nose. Um, it's quite strong in terms of bottle strength. So just gently does it. And I think, you know, when you're doing it in your own time as well, take the time, invest the time to compare it with Rowan Co, the 106 blend, because that way you appreciate the the aromas and flavours that differentiate it from the, the cornerstone blend. But for me, 
coming to this fresh, it's just so vibrant. It's very, um, as, the, as the name implies, for me, it is about uh, citrus fruits rather than poached orchard pears. It's, it's, it's more than soft now. There's a vibrancy, it's fresh, it's zesty. There's there's subliminal notes under there that take it to um, apricots and a softness. But it's very clean and I've tasted it and I'm used to what, what it actually tastes like. But if, if you feel comfortable to do that, then just see if these flavors carry through. I have to say for, you know, I, I am no master blender, but um, I have uh, tasted and and created some uh, fantastic, you know, there's lots of, of barrel aged, uh, beer barrel aged uh, yeah. whiskey on the market. This literally tastes like I'm drinking a Citra IPA. <laughs> and I, I don't mean that figuratively. Like I, lots of beer cast whiskeys have you know, almost familiar afterthought aromas and flavors of the cast they were in. This literally tastes like a Citra IPA. Yeah. I'm very confused as to <laughs> how much this actually, and it's particularly there's, um, you can smell, like you said, on the nose, there's that that citrus and, and, and lovely fruits, but on the palate, there's almost an effervescent uh, effervescence yeah. and, and coming through, like, it's Literally. got a mouth-watering characteristic, hasn't it? it, it that yeah. citrus note carries through it to the taste. Yeah, but I, 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 get, is, I get a slight acidity on it. You get yeah. that slight, slight acidity coming through um, from, from that. That helps this boost the, uh, the citrus character, yeah. I think. Yeah. And that depth of character that you find in Rowan Co., that was, that was why it took 106 prototypes before we landed it. We wanted that exceptional depth of character but doing the, the, the citra has taken it in a different direction. And for me, it's it's brought with it an intrigue. So you're identifying the citra IPA right away, Matt. But for me, not really being familiar with these, it was more about, I really like this flavor and it is citrusy and it's kind of drawing me in. Um, and so I, I think that, that the combination really works and it just accentuates the fruitiness, takes it in a bit, different direction but it still works absolutely in the background i've i've just added an ever so small uh, drop of water just to to see what the change is and, yeah. and, and on the nose that that uh, almost a a lemon oil more so like that yeah. almost, it's kind of stupid but it's almost like doing a hop rub um uh, in your hands but that lemon oil is coming through on the aroma and then on the yeah. palate you know again that's almost a still fruity but opened up more that kind of the drier citrus almost pith or, or skin maybe as well yeah. almost an expressed citrus um i'm bamboozled and, and flabbergasted <laughs> over how much this <laughs> i have not tasted a beer cask finished whiskey that tastes so close to the beer but also retains whiskey character if that makes sense yeah. i've had overpowering and i've no. had lackluster and um, this is the perplexing and and delightful at the same time so thank you, you to all of you, you get the, the hoppiness as an aftertaste as well which is um 
really interesting for me. You get the citrusiness, which is the mouth watering when you taste it initially. Once you've swallowed, you get that bitter, hoppy taste, but not in a an unpleasant way. It's just a, a different characteristic. Absolutely. Uh, clearly, Peter can brew some good beer too. So. Uh... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, what was, what, was, what, was, what was very interesting is that the, uh, the Citra IPA beer out of the barrel was so different to what it started from, yet you're getting more of the original beer characters coming through on the whiskey. Very interesting, yeah. So you, you, you started with the Citra IPA, you created a completely different beer, but the whiskey retained characters of the original beer. So you ended up with a triangle. <laughs> and, and for you, yeah. Peter, when, when these projects are complete, um, excuse me, these aren't just sacrificial beers. You, oh, you take those at the end and, and uh, I suppose, deliver those to the people that like to imbibe upon the Guinness Open Gate Brewery's uh, tap list. Absolutely. Um, and I, there's, there's very, very little beer that goes to waste in the Open Gate. It always <laughs> finds a home. Um, but, yeah, because I mean, we only did um, two barrels, um, two casks uh, of beer, it was a – very limited release and very uh, ex um, exclusive uh, mailing <laughs> list. You got uh, some small pack, um, but yeah, they, those beers didn't go to waste. They were uh, they found some good homes. Absolutely. Um, so perhaps is this a moment to to delve into the Antwerpen Stout? Perhaps sounds good. Yep. So, uh, Karen, could you talk us through what the the ABV on this? On this, uh, yeah, yeah. So again, uh, cast strength, this one's 55.9. Um, so again, just approach it knowing that and right away you can tell the difference between these two. So that's what hits me initially when you're doing them side by side. It's, it's, it's a good way to highlight differences between products, but it's much heavier than the Citra. And when you go back to it, it, it continues to evolve. And you find that with a lot of whiskies, you know, you get the first impression and then you go back to nose it again and it just builds and builds. I don't know, Matt, have you, have you had a chance to nose it yet? I have. How would you describe it? See, this is one of those things, you, you being a master blender, asking me to describe it. <laughs> so, it's it's one of those Exactly. Uh, it's it's always, um, you know, in, in my former careers as a brand ambassador, I was always told never uh, ask a room their opinion on a glass because everyone would be too too afraid to give their opinions. And now I'm feeling very self-conscious about my choices of words. <laughs> uh, but I mean, for me, when, when you're talking about the, the roast malt, like on, on the palate, I'm getting a lot of that roast malt. But on the nose, it, it's probably the first whiskey I've truly nosed cacao nibs i've seen cacao nibs yeah. as a flavor descriptor on multitudes of whiskies but this is truly the one that i'm i'm getting an overwhelming sense of sticking my nose into a bag of 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 cacao nibs and i'm finding yeah. this uh very interesting to 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 nose and the the fact that we used first fill bourbon with the rowan cone and a lot of the the whiskies that we chose for it I think that soft vanilla creaminess is carried through and it works really well with the cacao nibs that you're talking about, Matt. So you get that intensity and the depth of character, but it's soft at the same time. 
Um, it takes me back to uh, candy floss and spun sugar. So that there's that inherent sweetness in it. But it's almost going towards a savoury note compared to mm -hmm. the citra one. Uh, for me, again, I've just added a, uh, having tried it first, I've added a small amount of water um, and, I've, and I've, I've got a, a compound flavor that came at me and it was um, uh, like a, American s'mores, like the, you know, the biscuit and marshmallows and chocolate. And I, I like, mm -hmm. in my head, I like that because you've got the vanilla, you've yeah. got that again, that little bit of sweetness, the roast, the yeah. kind of cacao nibs, and then the, the, the grain coming through as well. But, that's a, that was a big, big, the first thing that jumped out of me in the glass out of that. Um, and I think going back to the original brief for Ronco, it was about a contemporary blend and it had to be approachable and accessible so that people who were not whiskey drinkers, if they gave it a try, then they would start to appreciate the flavours in there. And I think both of these whiskies, the innovations, definitely do that. And you will get people who will lean towards one rather than the other. And that's really important because we want to appeal to different consumers as well. But um, the important message to take away is you have to try these things, especially nose, but you need to taste it as well to appreciate what it delivers. And just like you were doing by adding a touch of water, try it different ways because you might like it neat or you might prefer it in a cocktail serve. Citra works really, really good with uh, a high-end um, tonic water. I, I like really simple cocktails because I'm a bit <laughs> old-fashioned that way. But tonic water in Ronco and Citra, it just makes it come alive for me. I like it. Um, and you were saying that the you know Ronco is designed to appeal to different consumers. Um, having been to the distillery quite a number of times, I think... It, it it certainly embodies that in the actual distillery itself. Um, and I know that, you know, it, it's it's a showpiece distillery in a sense of the how it's designed and laid out. And it's in the old Paris station for, for Guinness. Um, but it's, you know, it has something for everyone, but is not only showpiece. Uh, Laura, I want to ho hope to bring you back in here. Um that while it's it's aesthetically beautiful and there is the cocktail bar and they do have the the fantastic um, store as well, um, Laura, I know you uh, have a, a pretty crack team of uh, of distillers in there working with you, uh, um, and 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 oddly, I keep finding people who work in the Rowan Co distillery by sheer accident. It's like a friend's roommate and like my work colleagues, like brother and, or, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a fun little microcosm of continuously running into Roanco employees. Um, but going forwards with finding and, and distilling Caroline's, uh, flavor profiles, what does that look like on a, on a day to day uh, basis for you? And, and I know you mentioned that there's kind of different fermentation, uh, times and expectations for the flavors. What what does that look like? I suppose as your your part of the role. Yes, I mean we we built the distillery to I guess work with um, a wide range of spirit characters. It's the I talk about it and this a lot as as laying down flavor blocks and I guess acting as a, a sort of a spice rack for for Caroline to then go and reassemble later. But that that's what we're essentially doing. We're creating these 
um, blocks of flavor that, that can then be remixed um, into you know, all sorts of different configurations. So whilst we're laying down you know, our core characters, which, which form the, uh, gonna form the, the malt component of the blend in the future, uh, we can do a lot of other things. We can play a lot of other tunes. And we've been doing that already, actually. We've been working quite widely with fermentation. We actually laid down some double distillation. Our, our stills do all sorts of cool things. We can lay down you know, triple distillation, double distillation, anything in between. And, and we've certainly been doing that. So um, I guess it's it's laying down an, an artist's palette of, of uh, different spirit types that we can then not only tweak in the distillery, but then tweak in maturation and then reassemble again when we're putting together grains. So it's a, a complex jigsaw puzzle. And I guess that's how I'd describe my job. It's um, sort of assembling pieces that we can that we can use again later. But look, it, it's a manual distillery. It's like, for the most part, we've, we've automated a lot of the, the stuff underneath the, the mezzanine level. So still discharge and, and things that like you wouldn't really want to be fiddling around no. with un under stills and uh, too late at night. Um, but look, the flavour impactful processes are very manual, very deliberately. We wanted them to be. And just like Caroline's been explaining how we wanted to appeal to a, a broad range of consumers, we also wanted to show them how we do it. Um, and that's really important. It's, it's why the distillery was designed the way it was. Um, having said that, there's a, a very cool basement that I can't take people on on, on tours when we are open. Um, that's full of all sorts of um, little twists and turns and, and interesting pieces of kit. And actually, we've got some um, kit down there that will allow us to to work with different cereal types. We've got our mill. Um, we've then got you know, all of the stuff that's been put in for sustainable purposes that actually then gives us you know, extra um, functionality to to make cool flavor too. So, um, yeah, my job is a lot of fun and it's a lot of climbing around on, on ladders too and um, sort of tearing around the place really. And I, I believe there is a, an old tunnel between yourself and Peter down there. You can, you can sneak, sneak across to each other. There is. It's bolted at the moment, but I, I might let Peter in one day. <laughs> it's great. I've only been in it once, actually, so to my shame. It's, it's, a, it's like, like the set of a, an old sci-fi film down there. I mean, it's, um, yeah, St. James's Gate is full of these, like, hidden secrets. It's real. Um, so, so from, you know, uh, an experimentation point of view, um, working, I suppose, with the Rowan Co. profile, what does that allow you to do from a distillation and maturation point of view? And then obviously it has to tie into something that Caroline wants to do on the far end. Um, but what, what, what kind of, uh, things have, have you, are you, I suppose, able to talk about, um, <laughs> on, on a, on a, <laughs> on a stream like this? We've got some very cool projects involving wood. Um, I, I guess I'm interested in deconstructing the idea of what maturation actually is on a certain level, and, and that's something that ties in with with a blender's role. So we, we're we're working a lot in in that space, um, and certainly on um, the distillery end, on the spirit end, we've got some super cool projects. Um, coming up with with yeast now obviously those are going to take a wee bit of time to, to come to fruition so that's very long long-term thinking but um some really interesting uh really interesting yeast work which i think will be pretty um new to new to market when we do get to release it um so i guess we're playing with everything in that respect but staying true to the idea of uh, idea of row two i mean we we have um 
the identity of our, our liquids that is being safeguarded by Caroline and, and her team. But you know, what we make it also has to reflect you know the strength of that and um, you know complement it. Absolutely. And, and I suppose back to you, Caroline, I suppose who I presume there is a, a handover team or a handover person that will be taking up the mantle uh, as you as you enjoy putting your garden together in your new home. Yep. <laughs> um, who, who will be taking that that mantle from you? Uh, so, yeah, really comfortable at handing over to George Harper, who works in the whiskey specialist team beside me at the moment. Um, he has a, a wealth of experience, um, particularly around about Johnny Walker. Uh, so he's been at the bench um, looking at our building blocks for Romco, <laughs> uh, nosing them and putting his own form of words around about it because you need that freedom to be able to describe them and be comfortable with uh, your form of words. So, yeah, that experience is, is ongoing and... Uh, I'm really interested to see what spin he puts on it with Laura and Peter going forward. So really interesting times in the future for Ronco, but we need to maintain the quality of Ronco as well. That's critically important. And I'm sure that'll be done. I've, I've no qualms about that at all. Well, that, that's great to hear that. I suppose the the, the team is in safe hands and, and Ronco as a, as a brand is in safe hands. Um, if, if people were out there you know, watching this now that are thinking of getting into the the whiskey industry at large. And and I know you've worked with not just whiskey, but of course, kind of cures and RTDs and, and other parts of, of the Diageo portfolio. Um, yeah. If you were to, you know, if it was yourself, maybe you're going back to speak to or, or someone starting off in the industry today. Uh, do you have any advice for people that are, I suppose, pursuing uh, a role in sensory or, or otherwise in the industry? Yeah, I think the the critical skill to be a blender is all about the ability to be able to nose and taste and describe comfortably what you're working with. Um, but if you wind the clock back again to school times, I, I would really encourage people to, if they're interested in science-based um, subjects like chemistry and biology and, and a bit of physics as well, but all these type of topics really lend themselves well to getting into the whiskey industry. Um, the sensory bit you can build on. You need to have a minimum um, base level of competency, but that evolves over time. And I'm still learning. I mean, I stand at the bench routinely and I mix A with B and it comes up with something completely different. And you would expect that, but it probably takes me in a different direction sometimes, which keeps me on my toes. But yeah, um, encourage everybody, whether you're male or female, it should be about your capability. Um, but things have changed, I would say, if you wind the clock back again to when I started. It tended to be more males in the role, and it's nice to see that that has changed over time to include um, people who, as I said, have got the competency. Um, that's the important skill that we're after. So go and for it. Follow your dreams if you're... If you're at all interested, I would say go for it and push the boundaries. Yeah, that's very fair. Um, and if you were uh, to to look back, I suppose, you know, putting the 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 gaze wider than our Irish whiskey, was there a, was there a, a, a product launch or a career highlight or something that you look back fond, uh, fondly and 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 think, I suppose, perhaps think back off and on 
um, that really stuck with you uh, throughout the, the 35 years? I think there's not one one particular point. I think I've been really privileged in that there have been lots of different events and opportunities, traveling to exotic places that I would never have gone to if it hadn't been for working in Diageo. So, um, yeah, going to Guatemala and meeting the master blender for Zacapa Rum was an obvious highlight. Um, more recently, going to America for Ronco launches, uh, that was exceptional, going to different states as well. And and it's about that connectivity. So meeting with customers or even just working with a superb team like Ronco and, and the whiskey team as well. I think, you know, that dynamic has got to work and it brings out the best in people and you play to people's strengths. Um, and that's why it's really important that we have a team that we can lean in on and we know who who's good at different things and we can play to that. So lots of happy memories. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm taking them with me and uh, looking forward to retirement. Yeah, and what that brings. Who knows? Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to put you on the spot one more time before we wrap up. Uh, outside of the whiskey sphere, because obviously you started and uh, elsewhere and moved into the whiskey sphere, was there yeah. one product in that you did work with in in any, I suppose, uh, the the portfolio apart from the whiskey end that that you very much enjoyed? Uh, in terms of a product launch, yeah. Oh no, I, just I, the product you worked with in general. Oh um, yeah. I think ones that are close to my heart because they were just one of the first products that. Um, that I helped launch. So take it back to the early 90s, probably, and it was Bell's Red Devil liqueur. So it was based on Bell's Scotch whiskey with chili flavours and a bright red colour, as I, I remember it. And yeah, something completely different, but of that time was a Terry's chocolate orange cream liqueur, and I can still taste it yet, and it was divine. So. <laughs> They're, they're in the archives to prove they were actually launched at Menstrie. So, yeah, these were exceptionally happy times and and ones where I was learning lots at that point. Well, Caroline, thank you so much for your insight and and I suppose, and also thank you for, for you know, the tireless work you put into Rowan Co., whether it's the 106 blends to, to make it perfect or working with Peter or Laura into the, the future and the experimentation of the of the brand itself. Um, as I said at the very beginning, I'm pretty sure I've taken up a huge amount of capital of Diageo to have all three of you here tonight. I've never had a, a master blender, a head distiller, and, and a head brewer um, on at, at one time. And to cover all, all aspects of uh, alcohol production uh, from literally beginning to end has been absolutely fantastic. Um, I want to say a, a very big uh, thank you to all of you. Uh, but Caroline, particularly to you, uh, a very big thank you and uh, congratulations on your retirement. And you. I hope I hope that uh, this has been an insight to the people that are watching at home about the kind of foundation and, and the growth of, of Rowan Co. And uh, I very much hope you enjoy uh, the new home and the new garden. And uh, not only <laughs> congratulations to you, but also to your husband who is retiring on the same day. So I hope you have a yep. great time. Okay. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. All, All right. the best.